Greetings, friends. I'm Will Nicholas from Never Odd or Even, and this is the Deep Faith Nine podcast, exploring faith and fiction. Deep Space Nine. It's a wonderful reflective moment. Flame the dark. True salt wave. Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine. What's going on? Why is this being highlighted? That itself is another interesting question, isn't it? I think I'm starting to get why this science fiction thing is uh, <laughs> uh, is so attractive. You'll, you'll make a sci-fi fan out of me yet. Greetings, friends. This is the Deep Faith Nine podcast, and I'm Will Nicholas, and we're here again today to follow on to the next episode, uh, episode 20 of season three, Improbable Cause. Uh, the synopsis uh, goes a bit like this. Garak's shop explodes. Luckily, the tailor isn't hurt badly, and Odo immediately expects foul play. Odo asks Garak if he can think of possible suspects, but the Cardassian seems rather uninterested and frustrates Odo's investigation. After evidence of a pheromonic sensor in the, in the bomb, a method favoured by Flaxian assassins, a Flaxian had, and a Flaxian had just arrived on the station prior to the explosion, Odo decides to interrogate him, but his investigation won't stop at the Flaxian. This is uh, one of those fascinating episodes of intrigue uh, and struggle, uh, an episode where there are many twists and turns and you never know what you're going to expect. And so who else but who could I have to discuss that with me uh, than Dr. Tamson Page to join me to uh, explore um, the the twists and turns of this episode. Welcome to the podcast, Tamson. Thanks, Will. It's great to be back and great to be chatting with you about this episode. Well, this is the first time I've had you back in season three. Uh, we had a couple of appearances in season two and uh, one of the first guests in season one. Um, so it's been um, wonderful to, to, uh, to have you on before and great to have you back again today. Today we're, we're doing something a little bit different with you. Um, this is not um, necessarily a legal episode, but an episode um, with lots of sci-fi fun. Um, lots of ship-to-ship fighting and phaser fire and, sh- and fleets. Um, and intrigue as well. So, uh, and, yep, and a whole bunch of cops engaging in racial profiling. So, you know, the law, the the law academic and criminologist in me, that's straight where I went with Odo's behaviour. Well, look, let's start with that. Um, Odo straight away doesn't even bother to hide the fact that he's racially profiling his Cardassian friend. Uh, he actually um, says straight up. Um, this was um, a, an attempt on Garrick's life because Garrick is a Cardassian. Well, I was actually going with the, oh, this is something that Flaxians do. Ergo, let's just round up and interrogate the Flaxian. They're known to be favoured by Flaxian assassins. And it just so happens a Flaxian came aboard the station just this morning. But sure, let's also go with Garrick's a Cardassian. Of course, people want to kill him. Take your pick on the racial profiling from the police. I mean, uh, Flaxians, as we've just learnt, uh, only kill people with poisons, and they do that uh, all the time, so they don't tend to use bombs. Um, but we still rounded up the Flaxian. Uh, I, I did like that interrogation scene where uh, Odo is pretending that he's wanting to buy a scent for his lover, um, and uh, I, I thought that was uh, quite um, 
theatrically and dramatically uncharacteristic for Odo. It definitely was uncharacteristically dramatic for Odo, but it also did feel like the classic grizzled cop I'm going to trap you in your web of lies because all because you are clearly a criminal and all criminals are evil and it was a little on the nose to you know pun intended in more one way than one I, I did like the fact that uh, as he's mixing the different scents um, that uh, he gets to the final scent and 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 that's when the flaxian goes Oh no no don't don't uh, maybe it's best if you don't do that and, th- and there was there was some a nice piece of I think uh, of uh, of uh, mystery um, uh, good cop bad cop comedy in that I thought there was and let's be fair if they were a legitimate villain they would have just let him do it and killed everyone in the room I mean so they can't have been that villainous an assassin there were only two of them in the room yeah um, and Odo doesn't breathe yeah so. Um, he would have just died, I guess. Uh, I guess, but that way, Odo would have been had to have been charged with murder, and so you know what? Well, he, I think he there is insufficient evil villainousness in the assassin there, when he had the opportunity to have a cop prosecuted for murder for being a cop and doing what cops do by engaging in unreasonable uh, interrogation techniques. Um, now, um, I, I guess when we're talking about interrogation techniques, are there are there any reasonable ter- interrogation techniques? Um, depends on context, but generally speaking, asking people questions and pointed questions is quite reasonable, but we call that an interview rather than an interrogation. Are we just being nice when we call that an interview, though? I mean... Well, yeah, look, I think at the end of the day... Asking questions, sure. Completely reasonable, completely necessary if you're trying to get to the truth. And it moves from interview to interrogation when the questions are clearly pointed with, you know, and loaded with accusation. But beyond that, no, I don't think there are any reasonable, um, reasonable interrogation techniques. You know, he was playing chicken with the life of a suspect. That's... that, that kind of, to me, crosses an ethical line. An ethical line. And look, th- this whole area of getting information from a suspect um, is fraught with, with these kind of um, ethical lines. I mean, the moment a person is brought in for questioning and, and different countries and cultures and legal systems have different levels of responsibility here, but, but certainly you've got a a, a mismatch of power dynamic. I mean, I mean, when when we're using the classic, say, prisoner's dilemma response to um, to questioning people, where we're we're actually keeping telling one group of people one thing and another group of people another thing, have we crossed an ethical line, or are we just trying to get the job done? Um, I would say yes. There's an ethical line being crossed, but also. From the point of view of depends on your perspective because the people who are doing the job of being police are engaged in what I would say is a structurally unethical system. Um, the entire premise of policing is about keeping the peace. It's not about justice. It's not about protecting and serving. It's about keeping the peace and catching bad guys as defined by a power structure. And so... It's inherently unethical. I mean, there's a reason we're seeing currently 
globally um, all of the movements from people who have been subject to historic over-policing for the abolition of police services. And the in Australia, the key factor of that, I think, is the way that we've had no response, meaningful response, to uh, over 30 years since the Royal Commission into Indigenous Deaths in Custody. And so many of them are for misdemeanors while being held on remand or being, you know, thrown in a drunk tank or whatever. So I, I, I think that while those people would say they're just getting the job done, the job is inherently unethical. The, the discussion around deaths in custody in Australia um, is, is one that, that is, is just so full of, of misunderstandings and misinformation and an outright misrepresentation. Um, as we as we begin to start to um, blame people who have died in custody for being there in the first place, um, and and that that uh, that that certainly um, is is a, unfortunately a, a very common narrative as people are having conversations about this in in um, uh, white colonial Australia. Yeah, and it's even like I said, I would. In terms of Twitter accounts and people's work to follow, a really great champion on looking at fairness of people who have been convicted of crimes. I'd point people to the work that Debbie Kilroy is doing with Sisters Inside about looking at, you know, looking after women who have been convicted of crime. She's a former former um, convict who is uh, now gone on and is a lawyer and working with an NGO called Sisters Inside, and she's doing some really great work kind of drawing attention to the structural power imbalances and the structural abuse. Her focus is on women who have been convicted of crimes, but generally around the policing and prison systems and what it does to people and how it victimizes people and just perpetuates inequality. And look on the on the um, on I guess on the other side of this coin, um, I, I've I've worked with in my time as a youth worker um, quite a number of police who are really wanting to try and um, be um, socially um, active and and look for preventative ways of policing. Um, but the reality is, you know, the moment we create a policing system, we've actually created an imbalanced power structure. Yeah. The moment we start talking about custody and arrest, um, we're detaining people. Um, there, there's a confusion and a grey area about what people's rights are. Um, and beyond in that, to beyond that, first of all, for the people you're saying who are trying to do the right thing within the policing system, I'd say this is not an issue of individuals. This is an issue of structural, institutional. Um, Policing. It's not about individual police officers. I'm not here to malign individuals or say that they are unethical people. I'm saying the entire structure of a policing system and the institution is inherently skewed to support, in Australia, white settler colonial power structures that are off, that are also highly classist in the fact that, you know, one of the great largest causes of policing is poverty. So noting all of those things, yes, you're creating a power imbalance just by having a police force. And it's a question of that, well, who's writing the laws? What's being criminalized? Why is it being criminalized? Why is that a crime? 
what is it about these things that is crime uh, uh, makes it criminal and you look at the way and there's a and there's a wonderful fallacy that people tell themselves about equality before the law that I think it was Oliver Wendell Holmes said you know the law equally criminalizes sleeping under bridges for um wealthy people and vagrants alike and that's the thing that people tell themselves about equality before the law is that you know the law is equal that treats everyone equally but that equality actually only looks at individual isolated instances not social structures that put people in a position to need to do those things and so who's making the laws what's doing them who's setting up a system where it's appropriate to racially profile suspects or to say a cardassian there you're a cardassian so clearly people want to kill you all of those things that go into setting up a system that makes that normal is the problem and part of the problem here is that every single one of us, whether we want to admit it to ourselves or what or not, make judgments about the people that we meet and the people we're in relationship with all the time. And so when we gain power over people, those judgments will actually influence the way we actually um, um, act and carry out and make use of our power Um and more so if we actually don't stop and take stock of what inherent judgments we're carrying around inside ourselves all the time. Yeah, and classic example of that, continuing on the theme of policing, there was a recent report um, around uh, women who had been killed by their partners in Queensland. And half of the, approximately half of the women from memory of looking at the reporting on the report, I haven't read the report itself, it's not in my area, um, looked at the fact that around half of the women who had been murdered by their partners had actually been, when they tried to call for the police for help because of domestic violence, were the ones who were then arrested for engaging in intimate partner abuse. And that's looking at the fact that a police system sees, you know, the men who are like them as as good blokes who clearly wouldn't be doing that. And so it's not just how it's being negatively applied, it's how it's being applied to people who they wouldn't believe could do such horrible things. So it cuts both ways on terms of how are your biases shaping how you see reality and how shaping how you exercise your power in society. And we're all... You know, as this one thing I've said to all of my students when I'm talking about this is you're not you are not guilty or have to feel, don't have to feel guilty for your social privilege, but you are responsible for how you use it. So I am white and living on stolen land. I can't change that, particularly since I don't own any property and can't give it back. But I can I am responsible for how I carry myself in society knowing that and so and I think the biggest thing as you highlighted is that too many people actually don't sit with the uncomfortable reflections on the prejudices they were raised in the prejudices they've picked up from the media the biases they carry based upon their history and their experience in the world and because it's uncomfortable to sit down and go, yeah, maybe I didn't do a very good thing there, or maybe I was wrong, or maybe I was unfair, maybe I took unfair advantage of my, of whatever. 
And there's a need for everyone to reflect on that. Not out of a, you must feel guilty because you have social privilege or social power, but so that you can exercise it in a way that is just and loving and caring and kind and in a way that doesn't perpetuate injustice and inequality. So uh, let's get back to um, plain, simple Elam Garrick, the Tim, the tailor. What do we know about Garrick? Um, I, 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 I've made a note here in my notes, and I'll, I'll insert here that about 21 minutes in, um, um, Odo gives us a fantastic list of the things that we know about Garrick, and I'll put that in there. But, but the reality is, um, um, you know, he's in exile um, on the station that used to be a Cardassian station. All of the Cardassians have left. They were an occupying force oppressing the Bajorans, and he is choosing as the safest place for him to live at this point in time is amongst the people who his people once subjugated. And, and, and so that's a real statement in itself, that he's actually has decided that amongst the Bajorans who racially hate him for being a Cardassian is the safest place for him to actually be. Yeah, and let's look at the fact that, to be fair, the, the carrying of trauma caused by the Cardassians, while that may not be necessarily individually fair on Garrick, is understandable. So let's just kind of say Bajorans having a few prejudices based on not just ancient history, but current history of occupation, it's understandable that maybe they're a little suspicious of the Cardassians. Completely reasonable and understandable as a first point. But second of all, we actually know by this stage he's in exile and um, because of something that happened in the Obsidian Order. We don't know exactly what happened. He's never confirmed it, but the show has made it clear to us as an audience that he was um, exiled from the Obsidian Order, which is, you know, the, the shadow government in Cardassian, um, Cardassian society. They're the, they're the power brokers behind Cardassia. Um, and he's in exile because something happened and he was forced to leave in shame and humiliation. We don't know what. He's never confirmed it. They haven't really unpacked it from memory. You can correct me here. No, they haven't. No. But we're pretty certain that he is an ex-power-broking, high-level spook for Cardassia who is in shameful exile. So, I mean, to be fair, Odo's someone probably is trying to kill you is not necessarily because he's Cardassian, but because he's Garrick. Mm. Yep. So, so there is a time where what, what can look like racial profiling is, is actually just uh, an appropriate profile of a person um, and the history from which they've come. Well, yes, and that's why when I went to racial profiling, I went straight to the Flaxian. I didn't even consider Garrick a racial profiling because that's the case that we have enough information between all of the time spent having verbal sparring matches with uh, Bashir um, over lunch and all of those things and his con his constant protestations, oh but I'm just a simple tailor. What do we know about Garrick? He was exiled from Cardassia for what reason we're not sure. He never leaves the station. He avoids contact with other Cardassians. 
and it's possible that he was once an intelligence agent of the Obsidian Order. A very strong possibility, Commander. Agreed. As plain, plain simple, simple character, character right. Taylor, and I'm like, okay, mate. Like, now that we've got that joke out of the way, let's talk about all of your shady behaviour through the occupation of Bejor. Now, Andrew Robinson, who plays Garrick, he's played a number of villains um, throughout history. Of, uh, and and uh, he's, I mean, this is really, um, I guess, the, the, the latter part of his career. I, I don't know that he's done anything after Deep Space Nine. But his most famous villainous role was um, as um, the, um, the Zodiac killer in one of the Dirty Harry movies. Um, and, and he is the recipient of the Was Dirty he Harry line. Lucky? Um, I can't, in all the excitement, I can't remember whether or not I was, uh, I'd fired five shots or six. Do you feel lucky? The, the, he, he, he basically was this, uh, this, this, uh, um, profiled, um, um, serial killer brought to justice justice by dirty harry mm. yeah now now speaking of american cops like dirty harry and we've been talking a little bit about legal system um we are inundated in australia with american legal um um thinking um in australia do we have the right yeah. to remain silent it's not it's not expressed in that okay, way but so you we... have a right to not incriminate yourself there is no obligation to answer questions to the yeah. police um and yeah, yep. from memory, and I don't, I haven't done most of my criminal, most of my criminal law work was a based um, internationally um, in both East Africa and looking at a few other bits of bits and pieces. So I haven't done huge amounts of domestic Australian criminal law, but from memory, um, there are actually procedural rules of evidence that don't allow you to infer anything from uh, from silence. Um, in terms of you yep. can't infer guilt from an unwillingness to 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 speak. Um, that's uh, yep. but that's about cops. That's not about cops. Cops are gonna go cop, like yeah, that's yeah. what they do. That power imbalance. We try to actually um, rectify that in some ways by creating um, rules um, and legislation and rights. Um, but the reality is. Um, Everything is open to interpretation. Well, and um, and a classic example of that, as we are both currently living in Victoria, was the Lawyer X scandal, which had its Royal Commission handed it down its final report last year, where, to get around all of these, while she was still in university studying law, Nicola Gobbo was picked up for a minor co- cocaine charge. And instead of being charged, she was offered to go and work in criminal criminal defense work while being a police informant to avoid getting her to having a cocaine bust on her on her criminal record which might have made it difficult for her to get admittance to practice law so they threatened and manipulated and blackmailed her into being an informant for them in violation of every rule of ethics and this is where i sit there and i'm very skeptical of institution the institution of the police and this is where culturally we have to be really careful about the narratives we spin i love this section in this episode where um they're talking about the story of the boy who cried wolf 
Um, and, uh, and and so um, uh, the, the the meaning that we would infer from that is that if you tell the same lie too many times, um, that uh, that that um, it, it loses its meaning. Um, uh, sorry, if you tell the same lie, if you keep lying, um, then then people will actually uh, stop believing you. Um, but the inf- inference that Garrick gets from that is that that if you actually tell the same lie over and over again, that's that was the mistake of the boy who cried wolf. Um, and so, so from a cultural perspective, um, the the moral to the story becomes different. Um, it changes the moral to the story. Yeah, and look, I'm not huge across the uh, Cardassians as a culture, but. I get the impression from watching Voyager and watching what I have of Deep Space Nine that they are a culture that prizes shifty behaviour. That, you know, is kind of rewards cunning and shiftiness and what have you. So, of course, culturally, if that's kind of, you know, seen as a virtue, of course your cultural interpretation is going to be don't tell the same don't tell the same lie twice. Be more creative with your lying. Don't be lazy when you lie. When compared with, you know, let's face it, the human culture in Star Trek is basically just American culture, which is a case of don't get caught lying is really the cultural virtue there. If you're going to lie, don't get caught and don't and don't set up don't set up a situation where you can get caught. Yes, that's right. Or, or don't don't allow yourself to be in a position where um, you will actually um, the consequences of telling a lie will actually cause you to be in a disadvantageous position. Yeah. Um, yeah. So look, and and culturally, I mean, one of the things in terms of Australian policing um, that I've often thought about, and I I read a really great article about this a few years ago. I'll have to see if I can dig it up and find out some information on it, but. It was a retelling of the story of the Jolly Swagman uh, from the famous story um, um, and, and telling the story from the perspective of, of the Swagman um, being an Indigenous person, um, an Indigenous person who finds a, a, a sheep, a jumbuck, um, out on the land and decides that, you know, if I find something on the land, a tucker on the land, then I can eat from the land. But the the police come down and the squatter comes down and the system comes down and says you've you've acted outside of the the system of power that we've now imposed on the land and and takes away all of the options of the swagman. Well, I'd also like to just narrow in on there on some of the language there. Let's look at what we call those sheep farmers back in the period where that song has come from. What what's the what term do we use for them? A squatter. Yeah. yeah. We call them squatters. And that is a term for someone who is unlawfully staying on land but acquires rights through length of possession because no one can get rid of them. And like at that point in time you have to if you can't make the connection between theft of land and and injustice to indigenous people and the system that set that up i i think there's some cognitive dissonance going on there um and it's and i think that is the key to the whole conversation you're saying about this about the retelling of the story i'm thinking about it from that point of view it's a system of power that stole land and then punished people 
for not accepting that theft. Yep. So there's a there's a fascinating twist in this story. Improbable Cause is the first part of a two-part episode, the second part of which is called The Dyer's Cast. Um, next week I'll be doing The Dyer's Cast with Michelle Kaufman, one of our biggest fans, um, who is constantly... Um, providing us with uh, entertaining commentary on Facebook and other places. So it'll be very exciting to have Michelle on next week to talk about that. And and Michelle is a big fan of, of Cardassians in general, but also um, of, of Garrix as a character. Um, and um, as, as also probably, well, we'll be very interested in talking about the, the interesting... Um, bromance um, uh, developing relationship between Garrick and uh, Dr. Julian Bashir. Um, there's always been something of a of a of a of a I guess a a closeted sexual tension I think between I, the two uh, of them. I would say that's really like I, I'm not saying it's wrong, but I think it's unfair to suggest that two men who have good banter, chemistry, and back and forth must therefore also have a sexual tension relationship going on. Not saying it's necessarily wrong, but they could just have really good chemistry as platonic buds who are yep. kind of frenemies. And and certainly that kind of um, profiling would not have been evident in any conversation about them back in the 1990s. No, I just written. remember Xena. Uh, of course Xena and that <laughs> Gabrielle were just good friends. Just good friends. Look, as a gay woman, so, I can't sit there and look at that and go, of course, yeah, like there's open mouth kissing and, yep. and everything. They're not just good friends. So, of course, it's a case of it depends on your perspective, but... The insistence that maybe there's sexual tension, I kind of, I never got it between Julian um, and Garrick personally. And we'll we'll certainly hear more about that from Michelle next week, I think. But but what's fascinating for me in this is the flip that occurs in terms of because we're talking about power structures here, is that at the end of this episode, um, you've got Garrick holding his hand out to his old mentor in Arbrantain, and he's saying, "I'm back." Um, and we know from that point now that Odo has gone from being in a position of systemic power to actually now being in a position of, of systemic powerlessness, um, that, 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 that this, uh, this, this flops over, that suddenly the, the policeman is now in the hands of the organised criminals, um, and that's a fascinating flip. Well, but are they organised criminals? Um, He's just moved from one system to another. The Federation yeah, would say so. The Federation um, would say so, but the Federation has no sovereignty over um, their system. They're from another nation. The Obsidian Order is a well-established um, organization and power structure within Cardassian society. They're not a criminal organization. They're not that. They are power brokers that are accepted within the Cardassian society. So while they may get called organized crime by the federation that doesn't make it so it's like calling so the someone jurisdiction a, it's yeah the jurisdiction has changed yeah the yeah. jurisdiction has changed but what i actually think and it's also really important because we have a habit post september 11 of calling calling um groups that are fighting for their freedom in a nation state terrorists when some of them are but not all of them but they're called that because it's convenient use of power um but I think the really interesting one here is the way that Odo tries to appeal to all the betrayal and all of the emotions. But what's really clear is 
that Garrick doesn't care because this means Garrick has had his power returned. Yep. Um, yep. And there's a, like, the, the, I think the best summary of people and power I have ever heard, and I've it was in an interview I did with Sean and Maguire. It's, I've published it in um, my paper, on a paper from this year called Zombies as an Allegory for Terrorism. And... She just very pithily says, in my experience, people with power are reluctant to give it up. Yep, for sure. And this sums up so much about what we see about power relations when we're watching it from the outside, is that people with power will forgive a lot to maintain, of people they disagree with to maintain their power. And I think yep. that's what we see from Garrick, is that what he really cares about is his power and his authority that got that we started the show with him having none of them. They'd been stripped away, and he sees an opportunity to get back what he sees as having been unjustly taken, and he will pursue it regardless of any other wrong that has been inflicted by those who can give him what he wants. Yep. And inversely... We've got Odo moving from that position of incredible power, um, now flipping over and not just falling into the hands of the Obsidian Order, but a joint operation between the Obsidian Order and our long-term um, bad secret organisation, the Tal Shiar, the Romulan Secret Service. Um, it, it, it'd be bad enough to be captured by either one of those, and we we've seen back in Next Generation times when um, when Picard Jean Luc Picard gets captured by the Obsidian Order, and they torture him with uh, with lights. I don't know if you've seen that episode. But, Haven't um, seen any Next Generation. Um, I've yeah, only seen yeah. so Voyager and parts of Deep Space Nine. I'm a little weird that way. It's an absolutely fascinating episode where where basically. Um, they strip away every part of his his humanity in order to get him to 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 um to to share information. And to be um, fair, I'm quite certain that Tal Shiar called that enhanced interrogation and not torture. That's correct. Yep. So so Odo's in a pretty bad bad, bad position here now. He's actually um, been captured by not just one. Um, uh, um, uh, uh, unscrupulous uh, spy agency, but a coalition of two of them who are actually en route to go and actually uh, commit genocide against his entire people. Well, there is that. And I'd also like to say that, you know, all spy agencies by very nature of what they do are inherently at some level Unsc unscrupulous. Unscrupulous. Yep. Yeah, it doesn't, to, it doesn't leave your scruples at the door. Yep. Yeah, it doesn't matter who you're doing it for. At some point in time, you're going to be asked to cross that line otherwise yeah I, I can't remember where it was from but um if you need to deny an activity happened it's a pretty shitty activity to be engaging in that's right that's right so they've been building to this point for all season at the beginning of season three the romulans provide um uncharacteristically um a romulan cloaking device to the defiant um and they do that uh, under the exchange for information that they might find out about the Dominion. So the Romulans enter into this this deal with the Federation to say, we'll give you a piece of technology, the cloaking device that you don't have and that you're not allowed to have because of treaties we have with you um, in, in exchange for information about the Dominion. That's followed up then um, by um, 
um, Odo finding out that he's using that cloaking device technology, finding out that, that his people, the founders, are at the centre of the Dominion um, and um, that they exist inside this great link. And then um, we actually um, have another teaser about this where um, the, the Cardassians um, are actually trying to deal with the Marquis um, and Goldicott, one of the chief baddie Cardassians, um, and Cisco have to team up and they come face to face with the Obsidian Order, building up a mysterious fleet in the Anias sector. In this episode, we discover that, that fleet that was being built up in the Anias sector is the same fleet that's now going through the wormhole um, to go and attack. So we've actually been having these, these hints being dropped. And only a couple of episodes before, the Romulans come to Deep Space Nine to demand more information about the founders, um, suggesting that they haven't been paid or, or, or the, the Federation hasn't kept its end of the deal for receiving the cloaking device. So this tension between Romulan interests and Cardassian interests to preemptively strike the founders um, has been building all season um, until we kind of get a reveal in this episode and the next. Yeah, and now I'm on a question because we're seeing... As you said, we're dealing with the Marquis and things like that, which shows us into our crossover into Voyager. At any mm-hmm. point, and I'm asking for spoilers here, I'm aware, do they take the opportunity to have Deep Space 7 of 9? There's, there is no Deep Space 7 of 9. Oh, no, I'm just disappointed no. at this point that, in that, time because that, that, there was the perfect like pun opportunity there and they didn't take it. There might still be the opportunity because um, because Annika Hansen, who is um, uh, the the I guess the the, the human um, restoration of, of Seven of Nine, uh, it appears in um, in um, Picard, which is in the latest series, um, and um, and um, has really um, become. I mean, she she in in Picard has become a, a bounty hunter, a, a freelancer. Um, and um, is um, is a really enjoyable character to watch, um, but I won't give away any other spoilers there. Um, and and I, I must say, and I and I've been I've been dreading having this conversation with you, but there is no evidence in Picard of of, of her continuing her relationship with Chakotay. Oh, um, that's just no, sad. That that she, no, she got a happy ending and they took it away. Well, there's no evidence that it hasn't continued. They just haven't done anything with it at all. Okay. And we've only seen her. A couple of times. So the promise is that in season two there'll be more Seven of Nine in Picard, um, and and um, maybe we'll find out more information about what 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 is happening or has happened to that relationship. Well, I'm hoping like, we also get a Deep Space Seven of Nine because it's there. That's set up. Take very easy it. to do, isn't it? Yeah. That's right. Seven Deep Space. Maybe we 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 can find a meme. There must be a meme out there somewhere. Yeah. Um, um, in our uh, other podcast, um, uh, Voyager, A Theological Journey, we're, we're nowhere near Seven of Nine. We're still in Season 2, so um, we've still got a couple of years to go before um, we, we get to there. Um, we're, we're still um, trying to work our way through the Kess years. So, ah, yes. Um, um, yes, yeah, so um, spoilers there, and I, I hope Elizabeth isn't listening. Um, um, we're, we're trying really hard in Voyager... <laughs> Um, not to be too worried about spoilers, but also to keep um, the, 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 the naive first contact experience that Elizabeth is having with the series as we go forward uh, in, uh, in uh, Voyager. Well, to continue on with our theme of 
settler colonial violence is her first contact. Which side of it is her first contact on? Because I haven't listened. Is she engaging in the colonizing of Voyager or is the other Voyager fans trying to colonize her view? Um, so Elizabeth has not watched um, any um, Star Trek apart from the original series. So um, watching Voyager through this time is, is, is her first impression of each episode, um, which is good. And she's, she's not binging. She's resisting the urge to binge um, and is actually um, watching the episodes. It's actually quite, quite a lot of fun for Lindsay and I because on the Thursday night before we record on Friday, we get all of these text messages from Elizabeth and her first impressions of watching the episode. Um, which is often filled with WTFs and the like, as she uh, as she she sees things she didn't expect uh, to occur. Let Harry Kim still being an ensign. <laughs> well, that's right, that's right. Uh, we did get a, a very amusing uh, message from her the other week when the Doctor deleted Tom Paris um, because, um, I mean, there are many of us who would have liked to have deleted Tom Paris in the Look, first couple of years. I, I, of I, I can't argue with the deletion of Tom Paris, but that's a whole different story. <gasps> Oh, look, Tom Paris is the Julian Bashir of Voyager, as far as I'm concerned. I keep saying to everybody, he'll get better, he'll get better. <laughs> yeah, yeah so. he doesn't get better. He, he's, <laughs> he's still a rake. A, a rake and a, and a good for nothing by the end of the show. They just try and make it more sympathetic. Oh, I think Balana's good for him. I think, I think Balana's fantastic. She should have just she's, punched she's him good in the influence. face a lot more. <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway, we're off track now. We we're are off track, and you're going to need to so, edit this whole section out. I'm quite sure. Yeah. Oh, look, we'll we'll see. Sometimes the fans they like to actually hear uh, hear, hear the diversions as well. So, look, um, one of the brilliant things about this episode and the one that comes afterwards, uh, and we were talking before about this flip of power that Odo goes from being powerful to being powerless in the same. Um, I guess dance as as Garrick goes from being powerless to being powerful, although Garrick and Odo both hold within them secrets that they don't reveal, and their secrets actually allow them to retain something of their power. Um, yeah, and I think that's fascinating. The idea that 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 what we can withhold from others can actually make us powerful in our relationships with them sometimes. Yeah, and it's about leverage. Um, yep. You know, power is about how you use it. And sometimes having information or having things or having skills or whatever that someone else wants and, you know, there's a sale market of one, you have, uh, you have significant power, even in apparent powerlessness, if you are willing to risk consequences to, to hold on to that. And that's, yeah, that's, it's an interesting one because usually the consequences are not great. If, in, if you're in that power dynamic, yep. but it's, yeah, it's still a lot of how you respond to power often changes your own, your own, your own power, um, power and position within that dynamic. And a show that you and I both love that really picks up on this is the, the show Burn Notice that was out a few years oh. ago, where you've actually got a situation where somebody has been in a powerful position like Garrick, um, and they've actually lost it all, and now they're stuck in one location. So th there's actually a lot of similarities between Garrick and the uh, 
the the lead role Michael um, Weston. Of, of Michael Weston. He used to be a spy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So so there, you know I, I kind of I kind of see some uh, some interestingly charming similarities between Michael Weston. And Michael and, Weston uh, is a Garrick. lot more personable than Garrick. Garrick. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And look, uh, Michael Weston's also constantly eating frozen yogurt, which I guess makes him um, um, a lot more personable as well. So. Well, it's not always frozen yogurt. Sometimes it's regular yogurt. And the, the biggest crime of that show was that Seymour didn't return after about season two. And I'm aware that's because he got an ongoing role on Grimm. But I'm still upset because Crazy Seymour the Gunrunner was my favourite character. Yep, yep. So uh, we kind of visit this space here in Deep Space Nine um, for these two episodes and get to explore the, the banter and the plays and counterplays um, and, um, and, and discover that, um, that, that uh, and we'll talk about this more next and week. I, but, but, can yeah. I pick up on something? And I think that this yeah, is, yeah. The, the way you've described it, the banter and the plays and the counterplays in their interaction, I think that really does sum up how both of them see what they're doing in this shadow world of it's a game. Yep. It's it's literally it's a game. It's a game with high stakes, but they are players in a game and people don't matter. Winning the game does. Yeah, and yeah. we see that so much. Like it's a regular trope in espionage. You just look at I said Burn Notice from the 90s, a classic favourite of mine, La Femme Nikita. Um, And even going into more realistic things, um, the current debacle that we've been dealing with in Australia regarding the bugging of the uh, um, Timor-Leste embassy to gain an advantage in trade deals. There was no consideration of consequences. These things were not about, like, what what will this do to Timor-Leste people if we screw them on this deal in a treaty by ch- by cheating and playing unfair there's just a can we win the game can we outsmart them can we yeah. and and it's it's a really interesting thing is that that power encourages people to become abstractions and pieces on a board which you know you and I both love our board games we play a lot together and it's really easy to do that with yep. a game and so it's there's something really questionable about politics and intrigue as it's generally portrayed in drama and the way it encourages making abstractions of people. Yep. And and it really is the key. Um, othering then becomes the key. This this dehumanizing of the pieces um, is the way in which we can then find um, the ability to justify all kinds of insidious and unscrupulous behavior um, because because it's no longer about what's right or wrong what's 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 even going to bring about the best result and 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 certainly you know we've, we've we, I could reference a number of games that you play where where towards the end of a game like this and and it's probably the reason why games like Among Us online um, uh, werewolf secret, secret Hitler, Hitler. <laughs> um, you know where these these kind of traitor games actually are so appealing because because sometimes towards the end of these games it's no longer about even will I win it's about making sure that they don't mm-hmm. uh, and we'll throw we'll throw caution to the wind um, to make sure that our enemy doesn't actually get get to uh, meet its victory condition yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean, I've played plenty of board games like that. I've known... There are some board games that I don't like playing because I can tell in three turns that I can't win. And so then yep. my objective then becomes to work out who I want to not win and screw their game entirely because I know I can't win yeah. at that point yep. in time. And I hate those games because I hate what it does for me to be able to keep playing because I can't just knock my king over and and concede because I'm not yep. the only other player. And honestly, the best games are those ones where it's balanced enough that you actually aren't sure you've got it until the very last movement. I am um, getting ideally... images of being robbed as Maleficent and Villainous again. <laughs> By turn order. <laughs> By turn order. I'd set everything up. No one could defeat me, except then someone managed to get their victory conditions before my turn. And so these great spy thriller stories, these great games, these these amazing moments that actually we love to see play out on our screen, um, where we just don't know whether or not um, our our heroes or our villains are actually going to win or lose the day until the last twist or turn reveals itself, makes for amazing and entertaining TV, but but horrific life experience. Yeah, yeah, and that's. That's kind of, you know, the really interesting point. And it's just how we we entertain ourselves with something that actually, if we were experiencing it, would just be traumatic and horrific and dehumanizing. And likely most of us would end up dead. Mm. And yet that's, that's our source of entertainment. And so why is that? That's it. Sounds it's when we when we place it that way. That sounds weird, doesn't it? it sounds, no, it doesn't because it 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 makes sense because we can we can see the world in it. We can it resonates. Mm. Part of the huge part of the research I'm doing is using popular fiction to explore social responses to law, and yep. the reason it we it, it it it's entertaining is that because it strikes a chord in our experience of the world. But it's in a way that's detached enough that we can relate to it. We can see the world in it without having to experience the world in it. So it we helps... get the excitement without the consequence. Well, and it helps us make sense of the world. When you yep. are just an abstraction to the people in power, it makes it easier to see and understand the world by seeing a, a this narrative, a drama about people in power who treat you as an abstraction where some of them are clearly heroes and good people. Yep. It makes it easier to live with the knowledge that to those people in power, you don't matter. Yep. Yep. And I'm not certain what that says about theology for this podcast because it's a little off track other than the fact that, yeah, like, choose love, choose justice. Um, well, look, my mind goes to a couple of places with that. I mean, I, I, I think of those those crisis moments, those crunch moments. So, you know, in this week's lectionary reading, um, we'll be looking at the story of Job, Job 34, mm-hmm. and uh, where Job gets to, to, to say to God, what is it that you're doing? And, and when we look at the story of Job, we find ourselves in the midst of this intrigue between a wager between God and Satan. And so this parable story actually draws us into the same kind of scenario where, where, uh, where, where um, the lives of many people get drawn into crisis um, because of a power play between two, two massive powers. Yeah, and 
I mean, and for us then as individuals, as sitting in that, I would say I'm actually drawn to a, a novella, a line in a, at the end of a novella I was reading last night where a very accomplished but retired spy uh, was asking for some advice from a, an old spy master about what she should do next. And he's like, and his response was, given in my long life and my experience, I would say, given the choice between love and anything else, choose love. It's what mm. really matters at the end of the day. The end of the day. And yeah. that's where I'm going to bring it back to, for a theology point of time, of like, that's what we're called to do through the Gospels, is choose love. And sometimes that's yep. complicated. Sometimes that's messy. Sometimes it's unclear. And sometimes, in my experience, being as loving as possible is going to look like being unloving to some people. And yep. choose love. And I, and I I think the other place it takes me to theologically is to the Garden of Gethsemane, um, where where Jesus is actually faced with that choice: um, do I do I attempt to remove myself from suffering, or do I actually go through the suffering because of love? Um, and that's a it's a fascinating um, um, thing to sit with. And I actually think you're right in what you said before, in that that part of our fascination with these particular stories. Um, and and our connection with them is is that they actually um, give us the opportunity to reflect on suffering um, without actually having to experience the suffering. And it takes me back to the beginning of this episode, which begins with a conversation between Dr. Bashir and Garrick about um, Shakespeare um, and about um, Garrick almost asks this very question we've been asking is 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 where is the benefit in these stories of tragedy when the tragedy is so obvious and 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 that's the point like that mm. is the point i mean you know the prologue of of most tragedies tells you everything that's going to happen and it's not that it's not that it's then a pointless story but it's in the craft of watching and understanding and reflecting and in the emotional catharsis of watching it unfold Mm. There's also a glee in that emotional catharsis about working it out before they do. So when we can see the the train wreck coming before it actually happens, we feel a sense of pride in ourselves and we puff up our own egos by saying, I saw it first, I worked it out before they did. And uh, that depends on the story. If it's a whodunit, then yes, often we do. But if it's a story where it's kind of... You know, it starts by zooming, by showing you the blockage on the train and then showing you the train coming, <laughs> coming. and making it And you inevitable. work out for the rest of the story, that's right, yeah. Yeah, so it, it depends on context. I think for a whodunit where it's about, you know, M. Night Shyamalan has written a story, so you know there's going to be some weird twist, but it's going to be obvious. Um, there is that feeling of, I've worked it out, I sorted it out, I actually got to got to the conclusion of what's happening then yeah, there is that pride. But I think in the kind of Shakespearean tragedies where the point is we all know what's going to happen. The point yep. of the Greek tragedies is we all know what's happening. We all know these stories. And it's, the value is in the story itself, not, yep. in, not in working out what the story is going to happen, but in experiencing the story and sitting with the story. Like we all know what happens at the story of Easter. 
We all know that, but we tell the story every year at Easter to remind ourselves and experience that emotional, you know, journey journey yeah. um, at that time because it's important to remember. So I think yep. that, yes, there is sometimes that pride, but oftentimes it's not even about the pride. It's about sitting with the emotions that they make you feel in a state where you're not actually feeling threat around those emotions. You're not unsafe because it's a story. It's not happening to you. But I think even in those times where we know exactly, like when we get the end of the story at the beginning of the story, what it innately does for us straight away is that it makes us an insider to the story. So we we actually, we get drawn in not as somebody who has no idea what's happening, like the characters in the story, but we we gain a, a sense of prescience that actually says says to us that we we're no longer sitting outside the story, outside the fourth wall, but we're actually people who have an, an, an unfair, unjust, innate knowledge of what the future will bring. And because we live in a world where that's usually a rare experience for us, I think that's part of the entertainment value well, as well. There is, but there's also that knowledge that even though we know what's going to happen, we can't do anything to change it. We cannot do anything. Yeah, that's it. So it's, yep. it, it's, it's an interesting one across the board, and I don't have an answer from that because... I'm a sociologist and not a literary scholar. Um, Look, some sometimes I sit there when I'm actually watching these movies and I hope that this time they'll work it out, you know? I hope that this time Luke Skywalker doesn't get his hand chopped off and end up having to fall helplessly after discovering that Darth Vader is his father, you know? Like no. You kind of... You kind of hope, you hope, like even though you know it's not going to yeah. work out and you've seen it before, that, that sense of hope still exists. You still sit there and go, come on, this time. But this even is, though this they're, is why, they're locked. This is why, going back to Burn Notice, I don't watch the last episode of the show. I pretend it never happened because for me it yep. undid the entire seven seasons of narrative arc. I know it happened. But I pretend that it ends at the fade to black in the episode before it because that is a more satisfying narrative closure for me. Yeah, I'm the same with Dexter. I actually felt that I took this great journey of of redemption and growth and and connection, um, and uh, and ended up with a with it not working. So, um, so it, sometimes we get these endings that we don't like. Um, I just wanted to take a. A quick side note, um, I, I, I watched, because um, it reminded me about this whole idea of uh, predestination and time and, and, and knowing how things are going to turn out, I watched um, the first episode of the Marvel series Loki um, this week that's just come out on, um, on uh, Disney+, Plus. Um, and um, it, it's absolutely fascinating and i don't want to give away any spoilers because you know i'm not going to watch it because i hate superhero narratives i know but there are there are others out there who may um but it actually engages in in time theory in a completely different way to what i've ever seen before and i was actually in i'll be i'll be really really fascinated to see how they work this out um because um it deals with the concept of deviance in time um, which um, I think is the whole area of time that often sci-fi writers try to avoid. They just kind of leave that as a gap and say, "Oh, we'll just um, we'll we'll just make Michael J. Fox's photo fade um, slowly as time changes, rather than actually working out how how this 
these these paradoxes might actually um, have some kind of sense beyond our understanding of time. Multiverses, the new the new universe is created every time there's a significant decision. Yeah, sliders. Yeah. This one, sliders made perfect sense. It's it's right. So you got sliders, Bill and Ted, Terminator. You know all these different narratives that are trying to make sense of this. And and what I found um, in this one, and I, I highly recommend it. I've been enjoying it. I I know that I can't recommend it to you, but um, to but that's others, actually not it. for that's actually for other reasons because I can't stand superhero narratives as much as I love the spy genre. Hate the superhero genre. So I, I'm thinking, um, because I, I want to try and get a balanced view, um, later on in the year, my, my hope is after... I've only got a couple of episodes of Deep, Deep Space Nine to go in this season, and then I'm going to have a gap sort of in September, October. I want to review some um, some movies, um, and it might actually be really good to have you on board if I can convince you to do so, to come on and be an antagonist for superhero narratives. Um, um, if you could bear to watch one, look, I can bear um, to watch some of them, but you know, prepare for me to like get out my like Freddy, Jason, machete, and hockey mask and go go nuts because yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it might be a an interesting balance. So I'll think a little bit more about that, but definitely, um, I I'd be I'd be so, interested and in I'm gonna say some of the earlier MCU movies were actually really good. Um. Yep. As the genre grew, the writing got worse and the superhero genre was never great to begin with from my point of view because of the reliance upon superpowers, which is usually either a lot of money or magical powers and both of which are used for a capacity for violence. Yeah, yep. And I'm not okay with that. I find it tropey and lazy and we're done here. Now, if you want to write in and uh, and have opposing views as comments, then as always, you're very welcome to do that. Um, and um, I, I do love to receive comments um, about um, uh, the conversations we've had. Um, this has been a, a fabulous conversation um, uh, about a whole range of issues. Uh, and uh, as I said, this is a two-part episode. So with the Dyes cast coming in next week, um, we'll have the opportunity to explore... Um, the flip side of this. So whilst this episode has been all about um, Odo having it over Garak, next episode is going to be all about Garak being back and Odo being in a position um, of vulnerability. Um, any final thoughts as we bring the episode to a close, Tamson? No, look, I, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed the episode. I feel like I've gone off on a lot of tangents that have to do with the fact that I saw a lot of really minor details that I've turned into in t- incredibly large conversations and I've been a lot less focused this time than normal. So I'm sorry about that, but I actually have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. So thank you. I, I, I would suggest that you've been completely in keeping with the theme of the episode, which was all about a whole bunch of minor tangents that actually became much larger than they were at the beginning. So I think uh, we've done it justice. Um, I'm looking forward to um, next week um, with Michelle Kaufman um, and um, this has been the Deep Faith Nine podcast I've been Will Nicholas <laughs>